At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men with power want? More power. This is now the United States of zombie land. This whole thing is insane! Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction! Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is. It just is. Especially with the audio version of AB Live. This one, episode 66. Raw and censored and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. Tobias Churton materialized at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his latest book, Crowley in England. From his involvement in World War II, to the Book of Thoth, to his last days in the Kenoma, we'll get acquainted with the final stage of the beast life and mission. Expect Rudolf Hess, Gurdjieff, Jack Parsons, Dion Fortune, and Ian Fleming to make appearances. As a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include my interview with Tobias on Alistair Crowley in India. A perfect complement to this show, with some cool insights on Eastern traditions. Don't miss it. Thank you as always to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. I hope I have been a good servant to you, and the best is yet to come. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or some of my guests and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. And let me remind you, if you hadn't heard about the first ever Aeon Byte conference, 
astronosis. As an age ends for humanity, let us find together a new age by experiencing that intersection of Gnosticism and the stars. Astronosis is a three-day event of presentations and panels from the best minds in ufology, Gnosticism, and alternative history, as well as discussions and rituals. This is the one chance we have in finally hanging out together in so many cool social events. Our astral speakers include Chris Knowles, Gordon White, Gigi Young, Lawrence Gallian, and others. Truly hope to see you there in the Cancun area at the end of March. Make sure to get your early bird tickets while they last this month. Go to thegodabovegod.com for more info or just message me. Let us to our latest AB Live and never forget to write your own gospel and live your own myth. And we are live. Welcome, everybody, to AB Live. Uh, I am your host, as always, Miguel Connor, your pompous of Gnosis. Some call me the Space Cowboy. And uh, this is episode 66, and I knew it had to be episode 66, consider the topic. <laughs> there are no coincidences in this universe. And good to see everybody starting to appear on the chat. Good to hope everybody's having a good Friday, a good viernes, as they say in Spanish. Let me look at the chat here. Everybody's coming in. And uh, with us, as always, we have the great honor and pleasure of having back Tobias Churton, this time to discuss his new book, Alistair Crowley in England, The Return of the Great Beast, a book I enjoyed and learned a lot. Tobias, thank you very much for coming on the show and your first time in one of our live ventures. It's wonderful. I, I'm very impressed by your graphics, the introduction. It's beautiful. Well done. Oh, really good. Thank you. Thank you very much. There's actually another version where I have, uh, it ends with Peter Sellers in one of my favorite <laughs> movies. Is it The Party? Or, uh, oh, that, well, that's, yes, that is my favorite movie, but the other one where he sits there and goes birdie, num, num, howdy partner in a party and he interrupts everybody. Yes, yes, but thought I'd use this one instead. But uh, <laughs> another time, yes, Birdie Num Num. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? You're on if I was mute, on, too. Yeah, if I wasn't on <laughs> mute, I'd be great. No, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to this. Um, I uh, studied Crowley a little bit in the 80s and was very impressed with it. And I love my my Toth deck. So um, let's go. Let's do it. Awesome. And as always, everybody, if you have a question for Tobias as we go through this interview, please write them in all caps or put them lots of question marks so that Vance can get to you. If you have a super chat, obviously, you will put at the top of the line. And let's keep it on, yeah, Alistair Crowley. Of course, if you have some questions about Gnosticism, I know people have emailed me throughout the years. Well, what, is, uh, what does Tobias think about this and that? Well, now's your chance to ask him directly uh, if you have anything broader on Gnosticism again. 
other than that yeah uh, i'll have a few more announcements as the interview goes there will be an audio version of this coming a replay on youtube and everywhere everywhere else for those who miss so awesome tobias so as we've sort of uh joked around in our last interviews this is uh this is your Tintin uh, adventure with Alistair Crowley r running around uh, the old planet Earth on his adventures. And I, it seems this is the end of the line unless you have some sort of inside information of Alistair Crowley and the Pleroma. But no, there, this, there, this. Is, going to be one, there is going to be one more. Really? Uh, and, and he's not going to be killed at the end. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'd, I did you say no? I won't go into that. But uh, no, there's there's one more to come, and mm. I, I may I might let the cat out of the bag in this program. I don't know yet. It might be better. Let's concentrate on where we're at. Alistair Crowley in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll look forward to it. Of course, yeah, we'll have to think about it because your book ends with Alistair giving his last numa on this planet, and uh, but. Uh, so, well, why don't we get started with uh, why he went to England? He was, uh, you did The Beast in Berlin. It was really one of your first right. books, but this, but it ends actually where this book starts, right? He had to leave Germany sort of in a hurry. In 1932, he had to get out of Berlin because the, uh, the political situation there, um, uh, uh, Franz von, um, oh, I can't remember the name. Uh, anyway, there was a changeover of government just before Hitler finally broke through, and the the Franz von Papen mm -hmm. was te temporary chancellor, and he uh, knew Crowley from Crowley's activities in New York during the World War One, and uh, he knew that Crowley had worked for British intelligence, and so. He wrote to, Crowley wrote to his friend Gerald York in uh, in England. He said, "You'd better get me out because otherwise, I think I'll have a need of the Undertakers." So he had to get out in May '32 in a hurry, and he'd been enjoying his time in Berlin, even though he'd been living in, as usual, great poverty. Uh, but he'd been living the life of an artist and shared an artist studio, and. Uh, I, I'm sure the thought of coming back to England was was pretty grim for him because England had just entered uh, the Great Depression. A miserable time in England and America, of course. Brother, can you spare a dime? Was the song in America, whereas in England it was the sun has got his hat on, hip, 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 hooray, which <laughs> perhaps suggests a certain difference in temperament between the British and the Americans when faced with disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and he had been in germany i guess um the weimar republic was really a very you might say libertine time artistic time is that what he was tapping into that's yes he, he, he wanted wild to be, vibe yeah absolutely right miguel the uh, crowley was always always wanted to be in the and the electrical center of, of, of change and civilization and and berlin was the place to be in the late 20s, um, the Weimar Republic uh, gave uh, a, a brief period of flowering of, of German genius uh, in, the, in the liberal arts, in movies particularly, in music, in theatre with Kurt Weill and, and, and uh, uh, the development of cabaret and, and 
it was a dynamic city. I remember when I first went to Berlin myself in 83, you could still see the remains of how, what a modern city it was. I think Buster Keaton came over, it was famously filmed in Berlin, agog and marvelling that, that Berlin was more advanced than, than anything he'd seen in America. So it was up and up until the Hitler period. It was it was a world, absolute world leader, and also in the advanced avant-garde art, uh, uh, Germany had taken enormous strides um, as well. And Crowley was the first and only Englishman of the period to have his own one-man show in Berlin, which is an extraordinary achievement, which the art world is loath to recognise. But. Um, so yeah, it was it was the place for him to be, no question about it, and he enjoyed it to the full, as is told in my book on the Beast in Berlin. So it's called the Return of the Great Beast because because he he tried to keep out of England as much as possible, um, <laughs> <laughs> because he 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 he'd been in America, of course, during World War One. He'd been in, been in there from late 1914 to 1990, and then they brought in Prohibition, and if that, as far as he was concerned, that was the time to get out. Can you imagine Crowley living under, uh, you know, the Volstead Act, um, the forbid, forbidden to drink? Well, what else is forbidden? Well, you know, and what kind of political and social forces have made, made that Prohibition possible? Uh, he was, I think he was quite happy, relieved to get out. And, he, of course, he went to Paris. Um, which is the other great centre of uh, civilization at the time. And uh, in this case, in 1932, of course, he'd been kicked out of Paris in 1929, couldn't go there, so he had to go back to, back to London. So it was, uh, I think it was a, a dark experience for him, but as usually, he took it, in, took it in his stride and always tried to see the best of the situation. Yeah, he always seems to be. Yeah, he made things an adventure. And what about his uh, his heroin addiction? I think you're right. That happened in 1920. Where was he? Was he in in Germany or the United States? That's an interesting one because uh, he was first prescribed uh, heroin for his extreme asthma and bronchial problems by his family doctor, Doctor Batty Shaw, who lived in Harley Street, the famous Harley Street, London, which is where the most expensive doctors uh, hang out then and, and today. And uh, heroin was prescribed as a palliative for, for asthma, amazingly enough, as we might think today. And, of course, he was very soon hooked on it. And um, he'd had a terrible time in Paris in the 20s with it. Uh, but when he went to Germany, there was, a, there was a German product, and I, can't, I think it was Luminal, was one, but there was a particular German product that really was great, uh, gave him fantastic relief. And funnily enough, the, the heroin wasn't a feature of his time in Berlin. And uh, he, he was able to keep his asthma and bronchial problems at bay. And uh, uh, But unfortunately, when he came back to England, the, the product wasn't available in England at all. And, and, and the heroin started again. So he, he started to endure... Uh, appalling health, which just got worse and worse, but particularly in World War Two, uh, with the bombing of London, and never knowing when the next bomb was going to drop or whether you'd be alive in five minutes. Uh, the, the Luftwaffe bombing of, of, of Great Britain in 1940, 41 to 43, and then 
the, the V1 and V2s in 43, 44, uh, played utter and nearly killed him. Uh, uh, and of course did kill a lot of people that he, he knew uh, who were shattered by these, these bombs from Germany. Lives, many, many, many thousands. So the book, uh, Alistair Crowley in England, shows the man living under the creeping depression in England and then and then the whole experience of World War II on a kind of day-to-day basis. And it's a it's a, an education. It's very nice to be able to read about it from the safety, <laughs> relative safety of of modern the modern world. Uh, we have far less to cope with than the people did in, in those times. Uh, it should be remembered, despite the hysteria of, of journalism. Uh, it pervades the entire planet now through the wonders of digital technology. Um, you know, uh, everybody's bad dream every day, 24 hours, uh, called news. But, of course, it's all olds, really. It's olds. Have you seen the olds today? It, what happened yesterday? I don't know. You know do you, anyway, it was, I think it was people had a considerably worse time in the 30s and 40s. And to see how a magician... Uh, sexual magician and and raconteur and and bon viveur and personality like Crowley cope with it is part of the enjoyment of the of, of the study of the, of the book. Yeah, indeed, I was because uh, I was thinking reading the book. Uh, yeah, same thoughts you had. Uh, people today act like it's the apocalypse. And yeah, they don't understand. They went through <laughs> they they going through the the Spanish flu, World War One, Depression, World War Two. Uh, the Cold War, the Berlin been split. I mean, they don't understand this. I mean, for example, my mom grew up in Portugal, and Portugal was a neutral country, but she never drank milk in her life and other food because there was, th- even though she was from a, a middle class family, there were things that she never had from the time she was born to the time she was a teenager. And it was the fear of what's going to happen, you know, because Franco or Hitler, you never knew what was going to happen and hearing how disruptive uh, Europe was. And today we're worried about our deliveries being late and God knows what, what the end of the world, right? Right, Tobias? Yes, uh, obviously one doesn't want to under, underestimate the, uh, the, the very true, very real misery that the, that the pandemic has caused and the death mm, and, and the tragedies. Um, but I, I would still say that uh, compared to those times, um, we, are, we, are, we are relatively fortunate, but not having lived in those times, we, we could never be aware of it. Um, but the, we mustn't falsify history, as many would like to rewrite it. Uh, and and it does it does us good to look to look back and see how the human spirit has coped with with these these other times. Um, Crowley's view, of course, was that things were going to get better, but only after they'd got considerably worse. Mm-hmm. For him, World War Two was. He, I think he believed was was probably the final conflict out of which uh, Thelema would 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 come into its own as a principle of life, and I, I think there's quite a lot to suggest that he was quite right about that, regardless of the long resistance. He certainly didn't think it was going to happen overnight. I think he saw the World War Two as a sort of like the death throes of of. Um, of the communist and fascist uh, fictions, um, but you know, there's always there's always another there's always a new lunacy 
on the horizon. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so I, I think in, in some ways it was the death knell uh, of, 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 of the older the older convictions. Um, I don't. But yeah, okay. What would what? How would he have seen China and so forth? These are very dark and difficult questions, and uh, we should. Uh, it, it, this uh, this is not the format to talk about the political challenges. I think of two thousand and twenty-two, and unless mm. you really want to, but I don't think mm. I don't think that reading about Crowley will help all that much in the, in, the, in that. I think he was he was ahead of his time, but he was also embedded in his time, and his message was for his time, um, primarily. Uh, but there's a great deal we can, I think, learn from it today. A great deal is useful. Yeah, but it's good to have a sense of perspective. I mean, I'm laughing because, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, we came to destroy fascism. Well, you left Franco in Spain and Salazar in Portugal. My mom grew up again with a fat. I was born under a fat, a real fascist dictator, you know, like people disappearing and police yeah. and the surveillance state. And yeah, you lived a good life if you survived. Uh, but it's good to have a like a sense of perspective. And it seems, yeah, you're talking about political. Crowley seems to have had the same view he had in World War One, which is basically stop the German propaganda and get the Americans <clears throat> from not being neutral, from, you know, getting involved. Uh, and you can argue either way what that was the right decision. I also like, too, how he described Hitler. And I have written here, he sees a uh, quote, he's telling his friend, Carl Germer, who ended up in a concentration camp, uh, that... Uh, Hitler is making slaves to rule slaves. He sees a cosmos based on the false unity of the state. I like that. Which is like Doth, the non-existent Sephiroth of the tree of life. He denies individual supremacy of the Godhead. So pretty, very nice words from Crowley describing what was going on. Yes, and he was writing, he was writing that to Carl in a period when there are a lot of politicians in in America and in Great Britain and elsewhere were sympathetic to Hitler and thought that he was doing good things for Germany. You still hear this today from very ill-informed people that, oh, well, he was very good for Germany, you know, the unemployment and, and all this sort of thing. Um, they, 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 you know, there's none so blind as them as won't see. Now, Crowley saw perfectly well that this, this, this guy was, he, the other word he used for him was mad dog. And he said it's every German's duty to to get rid of this mad dog. And he was writing that in 1934. Uh, Hitler had only been chancellor for a year then. Uh, but uh, but I think Crowley saw it all coming and tried to alert uh, the British government as to the real intentions of Hitler, um, which weren't always clear to politicians. Politicians take a long time to realise who their enemy is, you know, and uh, are inclined to ascribe you know they'll they'll create an enemy out of the wrong guy very often uh we see this all the time i mean wep do you remember weapons of mass destruction in iraq uh, was yeah 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 weapons yeah. of mass destruction um, forget. yeah and the result of that propaganda has been uh, the destruction of of any chance of permanent peace in the middle east um and there was the other nonsense that you could have a domino effect of democracy in the Middle East. Anyway, 
I think Hit um sorry, Crowley <laughs> Crowley would have seen <laughs> Crowley would have seen through all this 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 garbage. Uh, in the end, people will believe what they want to believe, and politicians will always provide them with the uh, the, the the kind of things they want to accept. Uh, the truth is another thing altogether. The truth is an unwelcome guest at the table of uh, world discourse. Uh, Crowley was above all the truth teller, and he got he got Hitler exactly right, I think. And uh, it's extraordinary how people still say, "Well, there's a kind of link between Thelema and." The Nazi Party. They uh, do. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, absolutely. You know, there's a all that. Well, <clears throat> you know, there's the phrase in Chapter Three of the Book of the Law: "The slaves shall serve," which was Crowley was thinking about the kind of people who helped students at Cambridge and Oxford. <laughs> in other words, people who are servile by nature uh, and who want to be servants, so who are, are happy being given orders. And he said that you know. If that's what they want, then they will serve. Mm-hmm. And you, he's talking about people serving. Well, of course, people read it today: the slaves shall serve, and they, they start to think about concentration camps, <laughs> completely out of context, you know. Um, <laughs> but there we go. Yeah, I've, I've heard mm. that one. Mm. Yeah, it's almost as ridiculous as people say, "Well, uh, the Nazis and anthroposophy." Forget uh, Rudolf Steiner. Yeah, yeah. There were, but when the Nazis hated Rudolf Steiner and whatever he stood for, and of course, like you, they right? Burnt down, they burnt down his beautiful Gertiano. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, as you write, members of the OTO were put in concentration camps for or sure. attack. Yeah, it was. Carl Goma was sent to sent to uh, two concentration camps in Germany, another one and two more in France. Um, and his, his crime in Germany was simply communicating with what they called quote high grade Freemason Crowley. That was mm. his crime, uh, and that's all he had to do. And uh, be it not forgotten, um, you know, that Thelema had its first martyr, really, I think, in, in, in Gurma, other than Crowley himself, who was persecuted. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Carl Germer and Crowley were definitely very close, even, even to the end. He was, uh, seemed to be one of his main confidants, wasn't he? Yes, I think he had a lot of time for Gurma, even though he knew that, you know, he wasn't really the man to lead Thelema after his death. He, 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 he wanted very much Grady Louis McMurtry to play that role. Um, he thought Goma was too stuck in his ways and, and a bit wooden. And uh, the other thing was that Goma had never really made a lot of progress, actually, with, with Crowley's magical system. Um, he, 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 he hadn't... Uh, he, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to really work out what... Germa's attraction to Crowley was because it was enormous and went with him to the to his dying breath. Um, but it certainly wasn't. He certainly wasn't prepared to follow uh, the instruction. But this reminds me rather of the disciples of Jesus, who I suspect also uh, were deeply in love with their master. But when he actually came to practicing what Jesus had been trying to tell them, they mm. probably thought, "Oh well, yeah, next year." <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of followers of uh, uh, remarkable personalities. I think people are, uh, are warmed by the glamour and the sense of it, and and excited by the sense of being connected. But when it comes to the discipline, 
uh, oh, well, mm, we'll leave that for the others. The <laughs> <laughs> same as it ever was. And it's interesting, as we spoke before the interview in your book, Men says, Alistair Crowley did not like his name. Well, uh, it's fascinating. You... Yeah, I yeah. found that letter. It has never been published before. It's a very, very interesting letter to his old friend, Gerald York, who was a much younger man. Uh, Gerald York was a brilliant student of Cambridge University's father had been a don there and he started to write to Crowley sometimes as dear Crowley you know and Crowley was very upset by this and he said well, um, first of all I think we've known each other long enough you can at least call me dear Alistair um, <laughs> he said but but he said I've never liked my name and he said there's something deeply unpoetic about it and uh, he'd obviously inherited it and he said it wasn't it wasn't the name that he he wanted. I think that's that's very interesting that he didn't identify himself with with the name, um, and yet when he talked about his his background, his family background, he was very proud to a degree uh, that the Crowleys had come from Ireland, and he felt he was of a Celtic, Bardic, you know that was the romantic in Crowley one wanted wanted to make that connection with the Celtic Bardic tradition of Ireland and and. I, he never he never spoke about Wales, but they had a bardic tradition too, of course. Um, so, yeah, he he wasn't. I think that's something about him. He was never really happy in his skin. Now, he wasn't happy with the identity that uh, that life had dealt him. He was loved his father, but he was remote from him, and his mother filled him with a kind of disgust. So. This sort of dressing up aspect of Crowley that he liked assuming roles and other names and titles, I think is is, is part of his personality. Is his his lack lack of a fixed position in this world. Most of us are happy with our names. We go through our life, you know, being called that. Um, a true name, of course, calls the true identity of the person. And Crowley was really saying that Crowley is not calling me. That's not what I am. Maybe I was. The Holy Guardian Angel was closer to what he thought he was, really. Um, but he liked his middle name, Alexander, because he said it means helper of men. And uh, he said that's really what he was, as he saw it, that's what he was here for. No, no, makes sense. And how would you say his spirituality or his theology or his views change in those last days in England through World War II? Did anything really, did he pivot in any hard way or different way or even subtle way that you noticed? I, I, yes, I think Crowley in his later years was considerably more understanding and more tolerant of people's weaknesses, much more appreciative of what people actually did. He'd had very, very great experience of living on the poverty line. Of, of, I mean, in the 30s in the book, you'll see that many of his girlfriends were, were working class, uneducated mm -hmm. girls, many of them. Um, and he grew, grew to see, he'd look at, for the divine in them and in the, in the soul of people. I think he always had done that, but I think a lot of his aristocratic pomposity of his early years, uh, it goes. I think he's shed all that, and uh, he's much more become the spiritual man that uh, that was behind it. 
And uh, you can see in his relations, his capacity to forgive uh, people uh, that he knew were going wrong. His relations with his American followers, which the book follows right through the 30s and 40s, is fascinating. So what he, what his, his understanding of the personalities involved and also his difficulty in understanding the motives and the, of the people in California. Of course, he was separate, separated, couldn't get over to America mm-hmm. and misjudged mm-hmm. a lot of things that were happening. But even so, even through all that, he was very loath to, to make the kind of great judgments he'd made about people when he was younger. And um, I, think, I think a lot of his pretension had gone. I think he'd had many, many of his sore spots knocked off and uh, rough edges knocked off. And I think by the, by the end of his life, he was considerably more accessible, warm and fun, fun individual. He, I think he's always been fun, but he could be fun with people on their own level. I think he, he, he warmed. You've only got to see his last letter to, to his son, uh, Alistair Ataturk, and realise that um, he'd learnt to love in an, in, in an ordinary way. And I think when he was younger he'd found that much much more difficult he was highly idealistic as many young people are of course and expecting the world to answer to his idealism and reflect it and uh, so i i i think he was uh, a people who got to know him only in those la- last years like the lady who ran the boarding house he he lived and died in spent his last two years in she just liked him. She thought what a, he was a kindly gentleman, uh, funny, polite, you know, and um, no, no trouble. And uh, the people who had trouble with Crowley then as ever were themselves had a hang-up about their status. Mm. Every man and every woman is a star is the chief principle of Crowley's system, and he, he practiced that. And people who thought that their stellar nature was because of their birth or their amount of money or their status, he, he, he exposed that and made them uncomfortable. Well said indeed. And Vance, any questions for the audience or yourself in this fascinating um, chat? Oh, yeah. Got a pile of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is always a good Crowley subject. always brings the, the interest, yes. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Did we lose Vance? Let's see. Um, um, Occult fan has a network interruption. Uh, am I back? Yeah, you're back. You're kind of chopping. network interruption here. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah. Um, um, Occult fan wanted to ask about, um, uh, Tobias, what your understanding is of the Dashwoods of West Wycombe and Rabelaisian Thelema. Yeah, um, Francis Dashwood uh, established, yes, the uh, um, an abbey near uh, High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire uh, in the in the 18th century, to which a lot of aristocrats were invited, 
and there was a kind of fake nunnery of fake nuns. It was a, it was a libertine, it was a libertine exercise um, in basically, I suppose, um, fun, self-satisfaction, sex, and things like that. I mean, there was, I don't think there was a real comparison with Crowley's system, although Crowley was happy to call his house he rented in Cefalu in Sicily uh, an Abbey of Thelema. The idea of the Abbey of Thelema, of course, is from Rabelais, uh, who was flourished in the early 16th century, he was a doctor, studied in Montpellier, and wrote in Gargantua and Pantagruel about an imaginary abbey where the principle was face uh, uh, meaning do what thou wilt. And Crowley obviously was familiar with that. I remember Henri Bervin in Berlin thought he caught Crowley out and said, well, I know where you got this do what thou wilt from. It's from Rabelais' thing. He said, well, yes, of course, Rabelais was also, uh, he got the prince where he said, and may I remind you also that St. Augustine said, mm-hmm. uh, love and do what thou wilt. Uh, he never felt that the Thelemic principle was his or original, um, but that his version of it was a synthesis of what had gone before. Um, and, yeah, there is that aspect of Thelema of leaping dance and joy and laughter and, and, and having fun and, and loving life and, uh, and, and, and not being hung up with puritanical ideas about the body um, and relying on good sense and science and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, probably I don't know what Dashwood's real motives were. They, um, I don't think they were the same as Crowley's. I, don't, I certainly don't think the... The High Wycombe Abbey was intended to enlighten anyone. I think the people who participated it probably thought they were enlightened enough. Um, so, but no, I, I think, but you know, there is that. An arts, I, I use the word with slightly with some special meaning. There is a slightly anarchic quality to the Thelemic system, um, but it's 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 balanced, isn't it? Love under will. Uh, in other words, don't get all sloppy and you know lose control o- over the over these emotions. Um, do, is is what you're doing really going to work? And uh, so it's not just do, as he said so many times. Can't people tell the difference between do what thou wilt and do as thou wilt? Mm-hmm. Do as thou wilt. Please yourself. One has a slight feeling that when Jimmy Page put that on, at the end at the run out groove of. Led Zeppelin three, his general interpretation, it feels to me anyway, was a bit more of the do as thou wilt. In other words, uh, please yourself. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate his 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 insight also. But certainly, the message that was coming over in the late sixties, um, Crowley influenced rockers, uh, was was a sort of this was a, a signal to please yourself, whereas. The uh, Monty Python said, you know, the University of Please Yourself, California, <laughs> professor, <laughs> professor of applied narcotics. You know? <laughs> I if you ever see the Ruttles film, very, very funny uh, uh, parody of that attitude that he was just about. No, I mean, Crowley, Crowley's thing is ultimately very serious. It is. It's, 
I think John Lennon para, um, paraphrased Crowley precisely in his last interview in 1980 with Newsweek when he just said, look, do what thou wilt, but don't hurt anybody. Which right. Is a, which is a fair paraphrase. You know, it's, yes. it's you know, it's, it's uh, don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters, Bob Dylan. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's the same sort of notion that's been going about that you have in you access to divine powers. You have that. Uh, why don't you follow them? Do you need to be told everything? Do you have to be have everything? Do you need to, somebody else to tell you what's right and what's wrong? You know, do, do, do you or you have, do you have any resources of your own? The old prayer used to say, "There is no health in us." Well, there is some health in us, and we need to work <laughs> on this. And um, I always think Crowley's system is really just in uh, 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 an enlightened common sense. I felt that when I first heard it. Um, the point being, it was obvious to me when I was growing up in Britain where there was a socialist government of a sort in in the late 60s and early and to mid-70s um, that the individual was somebody who, who was born to be suppressed. It was your relationship to society that only that matters. And you could look over the parapet in those days and see Soviet Russia sending people to mental hospitals for being different. You could see in China that people were being locked up because they dared question anything the so-called People's Republic told, told them that they were meant to accept. And then you realize that if you had that real instinct, not just to fit in, but to get to the top or see above the surface, as in that lovely film, uh, about the guy who wakes up in the imagine in, in the soap opera, um, you know the one I mean, where he, you know the boat hits the reality. The Truman Show. Truman yeah. Show. Oh yeah, which, which is such a gnostic movie, mm -hmm. uh, I think. Um, in in you know very well expressed as Pleasantville was another one of mm. that of that, that of that ilk. I think they're very very fine pictures. Um, you know. When, okay, so you've hit the you've hit the borders of the reality that you don't trust, the one you've inherited or the one that is coming through education or the media. What do you do then? Now, the problem with the rock and roll revolution is it doesn't answer the second part of the question. You you have the pick up the axe and fight like a man bit. Uh, you've got the let's go to the barricades and and let's get angry, let's let's protest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's but very often, and certainly in the general presentation, there's a kind of, well, when the show's over, you're still back with the shithole. <laughs> you, you know, the, the lights go down on the stage. Um, Van Halen uh, retires to his caravan or um, coach or whatever it is. And, and you go back to your bedsit or wherever you are, your, your house with your dad's struggling to make a living. All the rest of it. Where do you go from there? And I think Crowley was interested in the where do you go from there. So the, there's the idea of what's your cosmic destiny, where you're going to end up really. And wonderful shows like yours, Miguel, Aeon Bite, uh, keep asking that question, where do we go from here? I think Guns N' Roses asked that question too at the end of Sweet Child of Mine. Huh? <laughs> right, right. And I think uh, I always thought Augustine got it from, yeah, love and do what they will, probably from Paul who says, 
everything is lawful to me, but not everything is beneficial. Beneficial. Yes. In other words, yeah, you want to destroy this old archaic law, but what are you going to replace it with? What are Absolutely. you going to? I think Nepal was asking the same question with, you know, what is Jesus going to replace the world with? Yeah. So I think I think Crowley's view of that was was he had a great faith in science, uh, by which he didn't mean scientists. Uh, I think people today confuse the two completely. Um, we think science is is what scientists say, and a person any it seems to me anybody can call themselves a scientist if they want to. Any any like you could call yourself a Rosicrucian or something. Um, the the point is science is knowledge uh, tried and tested through experience, and we want to listen to people with experience of things we'd like to experience. That's that's a, a pretty good basis to go on. Um, it's no good hearing people talk about God who have no experience of, of, of this conception uh, because they're merely talking about an idea of it. And everybody has their own idea of everything. You know, it doesn't mean it's terribly accurate. Uh, I mean, but through through open debate, we, we can improve our picture, but it's only ever a picture. Uh, in, the, in the end, it's the experience that matters. Um, experience of the self, you know, it's, it's, a, it's full of pitfalls and delusions. Now, Crowley is a person, I think, that, that is often presented in a flippant manner, uh, but his, his, essential his essential doctrines are, are simple in one respect, but working them out in one's own existence is, 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 is quite difficult, I would say. Uh, and many I mean, take, for example, I was, I've been waiting for somebody to say, what would Crowley think of the pandemic? <laughs> uh, it hasn't come up, but good question. Yeah, uh, good question. Well, the well, flu, yeah. um, the big flu was present in the early 20th century, right? What did he think of that? Yeah, well, I, th I think his attitude, well, you, I, I would say there are two poles. First of all, he talked about when he was at this dreadful religious school in Cambridge, run by the Reverend Henry Darcy Champney, who was a real persecutor of boys and an evangelical. And he said that the boys every week should meet the poor children of Cambridge. This is in the 18, 1870s, 1880s. And the poor children of Cambridge, of course, had every disease you can, <laughs> rickets, you know, diphtheria, measles, anything because of the conditions they lived in, they were all highly contagious and in very poor health. But for, Christ for the reasons of Christianity, the, the boys of the school had to meet them. And, of course, the next week there was an outbreak of this or that in the school, which the headmasters seemed to think that Jesus would deal with. But, of course, it usually... <laughs> so they've kind of... So on the one hand, he would say, you know, don't be so stupid. If you're in, in touch with infection, you should avoid it. And you should make use of whatever science uh, provides you to defend you from it. On the other hand, there's another attitude which he said. He said, he said at one point, um, if I had my way, everyone would get smallpox uh, because, okay, for a few generations, people would have rather pockmarked faces no. and be less, less but, but within three generations, they'd be considerably stronger for it. Now, those are the two poles, I think, he, the way he'd have looked at the pandemic. Um, in other words, but I think in no wise would he have had this attitude that we are to run or to flee 
from this uh, enemy to our bodily health? Uh, absolutely not. And the notion of hiding and running away, uh, he would have thought was hyper-destructive, um, ultimately, of the race. But, of course, you've got to remember, Crowley, unlike our own civilization, uh, was not afraid of death. And our civilization, as the jihadists consistently remind us, are terrified of even the thought of, of discussing it, even though we, uh, we're quite prepared to dish it out uh, to, in distant countries. Um, so in, in, to him, the whole thing was, was spirit, spiritual life is, is, it has a spiritual aim, and what happens on earth what improvements on earth are what is what goes into the subconscious and is carried on through the generations so he would he would he would say that it was ultimately in in the service of the masters that um, certain people may go forth and sacrifice as that horrible he wouldn't have used the word sacrifice fight for something that was true better to fight for something that's true than to die like a dog absolutely in in crowley's view um, and he wasn't anti-violence uh, at all. He wasn't against. He was against violating another's right uh, to to existence and to the true will. Um, but if somebody opposed that, he wasn't against. Wasn't against giving them a good, a thick stick. You know, a lot of this right. is is sort of common sense. But how do you apply that in general to the the COVID thing? I think you. I think you'd first of all. Say there are two kinds of people who should never run the world: one a doctor and the other a policeman. <laughs> <laughs> and that's certainly my my own experience. Uh, I wrote a novel when I was sick. My first ever attempt, I should say, at a novel when I was fifteen, I think, was called Clinic, and it was about a society where the entire society was governed by the health service, <laughs> and therefore. The doctor, who was always right in his white coat, had absolute power over the lives of the individuals in the, in the uh, who were not individuals. Of course, they were cases. They were cases uh, to be dealt with by science, and um, it was a quite an interesting idea. And in the end, the, the, those who reject this end up in a living in caves watching Marx Brothers movies, if I remember <laughs> the story. But, but, uh, Plato's cave with the Marx Brothers? With the Marx Brothers, <laughs> with the shadows on the wall, uh, <laughs> paraphrasing the real. Yeah, I'd say it's... I, 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 no, I do, we can't possibly be run by, by medical hysterics and, cert and certainly not by policemen. So I do, I, I do have some sympathy with those who... Um, who want a, an active response. Where I dis, di, di, divert entirely is, um, is, is the attitude that you can, you can spit in the face of reality. I, I, a, a virus is a virus. That's what it is. And if you've offered the means of defence against its uh, tremors, I would strongly advise you to take it uh, in the sense that you wouldn't go into battle without armour. But I, but I do think he would. He, I think we should. In the war in Britain in the World War Two, everybody was brought into the conflict. Nobody was told to sit at home and watch TV and try to hide from it. You had to dig for victory. You had to do something positive. And I think if, 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 if the idea of just people saying stay at home is appalling. I, I think that's absolute 
rubbish. I think you, people have to be galvanized to doing something. But for that, you need enlightened and active leadership. And uh, this is sorely lacking in the in our world. Yeah, in your book, uh, <clears throat> I love the sort of dichotomy because, for example, Crowley is—he's there. He's surviving the bombings of London, and he does yeah. the I Ching and tells him go to Oxford. But through the carnage and the, uh, the you know the unknown instability, he's still going out to social events. He's still going to the movies, meeting with friends. He's see people in London and England were still like, well, we're going to live even yeah, if we pubs, die tomorrow. The pubs, the pubs were open. Yeah, you know, yeah. we had to have black curtains because so the Luftwaffe. <laughs> Uh, didn't have a guide to where they could bomb you. Right. But they never stopped people from living. Never. I mean, this was absolutely the principle. And, and thank God for Winston Churchill, who had this wonderful active uh, spirit, um, uh, a life spirit in him. Um, we may go down, but we'll go down fighting sod it. You know, we, but we're not going to give up. We're not, we're not going to hide. And I, I think that that is the kind of attitude uh, uh, that we need. Uh, science is, I hear this word, science. We're talking medicines, we're talking palliatives, we're talking root plants and herbs and herbalism and things that make it better. Uh, that's what we're talking about. We call it science. So let, let's take the halo off the word science and say, what is the practical? What's, what works? What works? I've, I've pers if we talk personally, I've certainly had all the vaccines because anyone can see that, that there's that the damage that the I pick the reason I take the vaccines because I want to be free I want to get out there I do not want to be told where I can go what I can do if that's if that's the price the vaccine then I'll pay that price because then I can be free I would hate to say no to the vaccine and think you know, oh, I don't know. You know, and you hear these poor sods who are lying in hospital say, I wish I'd taken a vaccine, you know, I wish I did now. Uh, and, you know, and the poor sods are, are dying. That's no good, you know. Um, so, yeah, okay. I, what would Crowley think of it? Do what thou wilt, you know. The important thing is you've got to do what you have to do to stay free and, and to stay active. That's the important thing, you know. It is, it is the... The state of mind in which you're living, whether you live or die, by God, something could happen tomorrow or get something terrible. Guilty people are always worried about disasters, it seems to me. You know, uh, health, healthy people see the possibility that it might be better tomorrow or next week. Anyway, if we don't, if we don't get active, it won't be because you know, the world will just close in on your, your you've created a self-vacuum. So yeah, fight, fight, fight for your right to rock. You know, <laughs> <laughs> depart. <laughs> well said. And and moving towards the magical tradition. Uh, so uh, that's what magic is. That is yeah. what magic is. Is fighting is. for your. It it, it is. is. It's using every power uh, at your disposal to to live uh, freely and well. And and obviously, when you create a light and a freedom, it benefits everybody around you. That's that's the beauty of it, you know. You can't you can't do something good by yourself and it not have a good effect on someone else. Well, so if you go through life hating people, you first the one person you prove by that hatred is you've hated yourself because what's in you is no different to what's in everyone else. You know, there's only one God. You know? 
if you like, if you get my drift with that. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Then, and Crowley, he's, what is your take? Crowley seems to have, uh, taken the, uh, well, he says he's the one who invented the V for victory. V sign, for, yeah. 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 He takes credit for it, for Churchill's famous sign. It, well, well, Churchill, of course, never claimed it was his. Churchill picked it up. <laughs> Um, I get well. One of the great things about the book is I went into I researched this properly. It was Crowley the author of the V sign? Um, I think there's a very high chance that he slipped the idea in the right ear at the right time. Um, I, I, he really thought it through. He was looking for a symbol to beat the Nazis. He'd done a little book called Thumbs Up. Now the thumb <laughs> in this case is a phallic thumb. Mm. And they wanted to your bum, it. and they wanted to stick it up. Hitler was the, was the in, in England, and I think in America that means okay, doesn't it? Uh, in Australia, I think it means something rude. But yeah. <laughs> so thumbs up. But he was also thinking these thumbs. You see, that th those are the thumbs. Mm -hmm. The thumbs are the horns, and he's trying to evoke uh, a, a Luciferian concept of man, who is the light bringer. And who is not afraid of the darkness? That's what he's getting at. This horned one, this uh, so-called Satan, is is man as light. It is not. It is not the notion that this. You see what I'm saying? Perhaps you know. Uh, but he has this very ambiguous idea of the Luciferian idea, which is also in Theosophy. Lucifer as light bringer, not as you know the evil one. Crowley knew perfectly well that there were. That evil exists, you know, in the sense that you get a co a concentration of negativity, you'll get negative results, and this is quite real, and can be uh, very sinister. And he talks about the dark brothers and those who live in the shadow and all the rest of it. Um, so the thumbs up really is about uh, being willing to fight uh, evil head on. And um, the victory V sign is based on this, but he also it's also based on the sign of of, of Typhon mm -hmm. uh, in the in the Golden Dawn, um, who who is a, like a storm. So that he he had a wonderful he had a kind of theology of the V sign, and he was wanted to do a book about it. Somebody persuaded him not to do it, uh, which is interesting. Um, he he produced postcards, and he would say from the author of the V sign. I think he was the author of the me real meaning of it. Now, there's a Belgian. I went into the detail. That there was a Belgian politician de Lavallee uh, who says that he was struck by the the words Freiheit uh, as, as being freedom and victory. The V for freedom and victory. Um, but where it is, it is impossible now to say exactly who, who got the idea first. Certainly, um, uh, Crowley put the, surreptitiously, he says, put the idea over to a guy at the BBC that there was traction in the use of this V sign. Um, it may be that it was one of those ideas that occurred simultaneously in different people. But uh, I don't think he'd have claimed it if he didn't feel that he'd, he somehow was behind it. And it, it, it's the evidence is plausible enough, and his explanations of anyway his explanations of the V sign what it means are far more profound than than simply V for victory in the general sense. One of the funniest things was when 
him, um, Goebbels, the German propaganda minister, hmm. got wind of this V sign. He had a huge V erected on the Eiffel Tower. Oh, really? <laughs> it wasn't the alien visitors from that series? <laughs> he, he put it there because he thought, we'll, 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 ours is the victory. But, of course, uh, all, it did, all it did by par paradoxically, and he was so clever, Goebbels, wasn't he? But paradoxically, it gave hope to people who saw it. That was the yeah. joke. He thought he could he could diminish the power because people were just putting it on every surface. That just because it was something you could walk very quickly past <laughs> the and it, but the idea of a galvanizing symbol, a magical symbol to represent uh, a response to evil. Again, this I, this activism that's very Crowley. He he was serious about it. He really did want what could magic and symbolism actually achieve in a war. You know, he, he didn't have the atomic bomb. He didn't have that. What he had was this will to win. And and he, he wrote posters for the British Ministry of Defence. Sadly, they didn't use them. He said, what is your true will? And it, surely it is to fight for the life you want to live. Uh, join the army. <laughs> yeah. He was, very, he was very impressed by Grady McMurtry, who was an American soldier who went over uh, to fight in the Battle of the Bulge. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, 60s, very fine, fine war film made in 1967. Robert Shaw played the Nazi tank commander, and Robert Ryan was the American general. And a very, Telly Savalas, of course, was in it because he was in all those movies. Mm -hmm. uh, very fine film. But anyway, uh, McMurtry, the magical student, was actually out there in it as a, a munitions, as a munitions specialist. And Crowley was very impressed by this. And he wrote to McMurtry when he was on the front uh, because it was a desperate front that, uh, that winter of 1944 around Bastogne. And he says, I want, I want a man to lead Thelema who's been blooded. That's an English expression for fox hunting. After a successful fox hunt, the blood of the fox is put on the, the, new, the new hunter mm -hmm. and had been blooded. In other words, had real he said real experience of the conditions which we're going to be faced with in the, in the post-war, someone who could deal with that. Tragically, as it turned out, you know, Goma put, put McMurtry off um, and... and, and and McMurtry left, left and, and only came back in 71. Well, I think those 10 years lost of the OTA in the 60s were a terrible loss, uh, really, really sad. I think... Um, and... Uh, yeah. No, no. And, uh, for example, did Crowley do anything else magically against the Nazis or for England. Like, for example, we have, we know, Dion Fortune's favorite, famous magic spells and the Nazis and so forth. Did Crowley do anything else that we know of? I, I There are stories about that. Uh, I, I've never been able to substantiate them, that there was a ritual done in Ashdown Forest. Um, I got to know a guy who called himself Amado Crowley, who wrote a book claiming that he was part of Crowley's magical fight against Hitler. Um, I don't believe uh, the story that he as he told it. Um, I think Crowley. I, I think I'm trying to think of who it was who said, wrote to somebody and said Crowley's trying is fighting Hitler on the astral plane. Mm -hmm. 
So I think there's something in that. Um, I know he did a ritual when he went to Torquay, which was an RAF convalescent home. He went to, he, well, he very, very nearly died. He went to convalescent. And I think he did some sort of ritual. Uh, we don't know anything about it, though. He, it's not in his diary, and it's only casually referred to. But it would make sense uh, that he would have used whatever powers he had. Um, and, well, I mean, the most powers he had were, were his, his very many, as the book details, the very many propaganda attempts uh, he meant to, to, to cheer people up and give them strength and faith and hope. He wrote a wonderful poem called England Stand Fast, which he sent to the BBC and he sent it to Chamberlain, who was prime minister before Churchill. And he's, you know, he, he, he did a song, he wrote a song, um, which he had performed by a, a famous French singer, Vivre la France, to encourage the French, the liberation of France. He wrote, he was in touch with, um, he didn't even know it, actually. He, one of his pupils was Robert Cecil, was actually one of the main, main if, uh, contacts between MI6, special forces, special operations executive, uh, and, and the upper echelons of the British police. And Crowley didn't even know he'd been promoted to that position, though he knew he was a, a very senior advisor in British government. And he, he was practicing Crowley's magic, Robert Cecil. He eventually went over to Gurdjieff, which was his choice at the end of the war. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think Crowley stopped for a minute of thinking of ways to try and try and uh, uh, buck up the war effort, and in America too, because Thumbs Up was published in Hollywood, California, in Hollywood um, uh, by subscription by, by, by his followers there and, and to encourage the encourage encourage the the war to to fight for the freedom that's what crowley saw the war as it was it was it was to him almost i don't think he thought it was the last act but he thought it was the climacteric the decisive act of the end of the old should we say victorian world uh the old world and the beginning of a of a new world in which people would start to understand what he called Thelema, but we shouldn't get too hung up on these words like Thelema. He was he never said Thelema was like, you know, Lutheran Protestantism or something. <laughs> it was really a, a liberation of consciousness, which people would understand in their own way. Take, for example, in England, the Butler Education Act of 1944, even before the world end, before the war was ended. Um, this was the first time it had been written down that state education was to promote the individual's realization of their of their gifts and, and capacities. Education was not simply a way of taking somebody and stuffing things into them to make them conform as you get in totalitarian societies, but it's actually about the growth of the individual. That is absolutely thelemic. Now, whether its methods were as rigorous or as effective as Crowley's own advice on education is, is is another matter but i think the leaven of the thelemic impulse will continue to permeate society so long as we have intelligent people in positions of influence um, that of course is today because of the unpleasantness of politics that the best people are staying out of it is the sad is is going to delay this process but i think unless we blow ourselves up and all the rest of the fears um, 
and or you know we outrage make terrible political mistakes i think that is the future i think i think the thelemic principle it seems to me to be so obviously radiantly true um namely because it's not a, it's not a doctrine it's actually what everybody who thinks for a minute would like to see which is a maximization of freedom love and progress and uh with all the exercise of different people's gifts in health and technology and and music and poetry and all the rest of it and uh man is the bridge of art and you know all this fabulous stuff art i mean why hasn't it you know we have seen progress since the war crowley may be the the father of it but i don't see that being recognized generally um i i it, it, he was certainly an impulse i think a spiritual impulse and like all spiritual impulses probably going without without recognition personal recognition i mean mm mm-hmm. And there you have it, oh you shining crazy diamonds. Tobias never disappoints. Get ready in the second part for a powerful summary on the end of Crowley's life, including his state of being when he passed, as well as lots on Parsons and Gurdjieff and other occult exemplars. As a bonus for all subscribers, as I mentioned in the intro, I'll include my interview with Tobias on Alistair Crowley in India. A perfect compliment to this show with some cool insights on Eastern traditions. Don't miss it. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feed from AB Prime or Patreon that works in the podcast provider of your choice. And yes, you can now get a simple private RSS feed through Red Circle for only $4.99 a month. Check it out in the show notes. And don't forget about the Astronosis Conference in March. Regardless, please become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon or Red Circle subscriber for the full audio interview and the bonus and to support this Red Pill Cafeteria. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever. Might be the only way to finally break global oppression from the 20th century that continues even today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real hello and goodbye as always at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.